0: You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 119, Ensure Justice, Vulnerable Children.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak, And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we are back again with a returning guest to the show, someone who's been a great partner for us in our efforts and a great partner for the global center for women and justice and i'm really excited about today's conversation
1: i am too you know we just i just came off of ensure justice conference it was phenomenal and i wanted to bring a little of it to our listeners because the issues that we studied around vulnerable children in our own communities in our nation and globally are issues that are focused on root causes and how we can begin to see change, not by just rescuing victims, but by actually preventing children from becoming victims.
0: Well, and that's why today's guest is really the perfect guest for us to have that conversation with Sandy. And that is returning to the show Deputy Chief Derek Marsh. He retired from the Westminster Police Department here in Southern California after 26 years of service. In 2004, Deputy Chief Marsh helped start the Orange County Human Trafficking Task Force, and he served as its co chair from 2004 to 2012, which we've talked about many times on the show, Uh, and he developed and taught courses in human trafficking across the state of California, provided oversight to human trafficking investigations, assisted in creating human trafficking DVDs, wrote multiple grants, and he's provided congressional testimony twice as a human trafficking expert witness. He's presented anti-human trafficking Trainings across California and the United States, and also internationally. And he's taught human trafficking as an undergraduate course here at Vanguard University uh, from since 2009. He has an MA in human behavior and an MPA in police management and leadership. And he's a graduate of the FBI's National Academy. Uh, currently, Deputy Chief March Marsh is the uh, Bureau of Justice Assistance visiting fellow in human trafficking. He's researching how. Human trafficking task forces identify, investigate, and prosecute labor tra- tra- trafficking cases throughout the United States through on-site visits and review of how the historical task force and federal performance documents are assisting. Uh, he is helping to develop and provide training and technical assistance through the Bureau of Justice Assistance a Training Technical Assistance Center and the Office of Victims and Crime Training and Technical Assistance Center. The overall goal of his fellowship is to identify labor trafficking promising practices in victim and case identification, investigations, and prosecutions. Derek, welcome back to Ending Human Trafficking. We're thrilled to have you again.
2: Well, thanks for having me back. It's always exciting to be part of this uh, series and always fun to be, be a part with you both as well, knowing how passionate you are and how much you're contributing
1: to the field. Well, I was especially happy to have you on the panel at Ensure Justice this year on vulnerable children. And that panel focused on on local and national issues, but also international issues of children who are um, marginalized and may be vulnerable to exploitation and even labor trafficking. So often we just look at children who are at risk of sexual exploitation. So your presentation there brought the community's attention to a much broader impact. So I'd kind of like to hear from you um, just some basics of why children are vulnerable and how that connects to your role in investigating labor trafficking.
2: Well, Sandy, as you know, um, victims and people who are at risk of becoming victims don't magically appear. They're usually a combination of their environment and the family and how they've grown up, and unfortunately, some victimizations that have occurred before. What I was trying to communicate in the interjustice justice conference this year was that you almost we always talk about continuums of care for people and how we work gradually to get them to, from victimization through to be survivors. And but there's also on the flip side on the darker side unfortunately is a idea where you have a continuum of risk where the more of these issues that you find coming up in these young people's lives the more of a chance they have of being exploited or being in situations where they could be exploited. And so at the conference what I tried to do is opposed to starting from local to global I tried to reverse that a little bit and go from global to local, just to get people an idea of how pervasive it really is. Uh, And as you know, we were talking a lot about, and we used, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that had come up. And a couple of those goals that really applied along this time were obviously poverty, probably number one, uh, and also quality education, uh, followed maybe by uh, sustainable cities, communities, and the ability for kids to actually have a chance to work their way out of their socioeconomic conditions because as as i shared before uh, if we look at the department of labor came up with some statistics and they shared and they got those from the world bank and other organizations that right now 1.4 billion people in the world that's 1.4 billion um, are surviving on less than a dollar 25 a day which you know I, I just can't wrap my head around that it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense but because of that lack of finance, because of that lack of economy, you know, they, they don't have great mechanisms. They don't aren't they don't have good health care. They're they're hungry a lot of the time, if not all of the time. They don't have good access to education and, and to government or local services, if they even exist, depending on where their location is. And because of these lacks and these lacks of access, uh, all of a sudden they become much more uh, potentially available for people to exploit. And take advantage because they want to get out of those situations. We, you know, they know they're not happy. They know they're not. They're suffering, but they are, they don't know how to get out because they haven't been educated to identify the risky situations. They they live in cultures that you know are are rife with conflict. The rule of law, if, if it exists, is barely existing, or it exists one day and the next day it's completely gone. They might even live in environments where there's natural disasters, extreme weather, that at, they even contribute even more to it. And so by the time They get to an age, and sometimes it could be five, six years old, sometimes it could be teenagers, just it really depends. Um, They want out, but the options that they have available and the people that are going into those areas uh, who know that they are at-risk children are taking advantage of it, which makes them at greater risk for being exploited or trafficked, whether it's through sex trafficking or labor trafficking.
1: Well, and what about if... If it's not even the kids that are at risk, what about the if what happens if the parents assume that risk and the kids are with them?
2: Well, and that's part of the thing. It's it's a family thing, right? It takes a village, and so while it takes a village for someone to succeed and, and to do well and, and to get together, whether it's here at home or abroad, uh, the same thing works unfortunately on the reverse in that you know continuum of risk, if you will, where people are if their if their parents have made poor choices and maybe they feel stuck or they're in indentured servitude, or maybe they're in some kind you know, of peonage or something along those lines, then that's all the kids come up to know. And if they're in chattel slavery where they're actually owned by people, um, by companies or by individuals when they're working in mines or they're working in brick kilns or whatever the case may be, or maybe in the sex trafficking trade itself, and that's the caste that they're in, they don't see themselves as having a way out. And so generation upon generation of people – Perpetuate this exploitation, and there's no way out for them there's no way realistically out for them to escape it and to try to become more independent, more liberated and less, and less with a great with less of a chance for them to you know, have to be exploited by these people who want to take advantage of them. You know, our global markets and competition are so extreme these days, everybody's trying to save a buck. and Unfortunately, if it costs somebody their life or their livelihood or their s- self-dignity, then there are certain people out there who unscrupulous are
1: unscrupulous and are more than willing to do it. One of the things that I really love about our student mobilization team, live to free is they often spend time talking to Their peers and to students in our high schools, our middle schools, about how we contribute to a child's risk in in on another continent by our choices for cheap products. We're all about saving money, um, without thinking of the consequences that drive this 1.4 billion people um, being living on. Less than a dollar twenty-five a day.
2: Yeah, I agree, hundred ten percent. The uh, in the two thousand and fifteen TIP report, there was a kind of information table graphic done by Verite, who has a who has a uh, contract with the government to research all of these uh, potential. Products and services that are rife with potential labor trafficking or labor exploitation, and if you and you look at that page and you see just about everything we're we're using, from cotton to grapes to to chocolate, obviously to other, you know, just you name it, um, textiles, things like that. Those are all industries which are at risk of people being exploited. And then you look at all the migration issues that are occurring through conflict and things like that over in Europe alone. And while we're only seeing just a a very tail end of it, I think I mentioned at the conference that at this time in 2015, over 1.3 million people migrated into Europe. And of those 1.3 million, only 292,000 actually got status. So that means there's a million people living on the financial and legal edge of society trying to make ends meet, some with families, some not but still in a position where they're they're ripe for exploitation. And you know, I saw another I looked at IOM the other day and they're saying from January 1st of this year already more than 140,000 more people have immigrated there. And so that's going to spill over our way. That whole idea that you know the more people who are looking for a better life or just to survive because their their world is full of conflict, they're definitely not going to have that option you know, in Europe, because there's just not enough
1: infrastructure to support them. And also here in America, too. So IOM, and that's the International Office for Migration, correct? Correct. Yes. So 140,000. And there's no there's no plan for for how to mitigate that.
2: No, I, I, as far as I can tell, what, what they're, trying, <laughs> I mean, they're they're spreading. They're trying to spread them out more and more through Europe. But you have, you know, Germany itself, over half a million people have suddenly gone there. In Sweden, over a couple hundred thousand. Hungary, Austria, Italy, France. I mean, the UK, even Finland and Norway. I mean, are are, are trying to support these folks, and they just don't have the infrastructure to support it. And you know, I understand that from a from a day to day perspective, we here in America aren't impacted by that unless you have family out there or things are happening. But I mean, the same, similar things are happening here too. Uh, the Migration Policy Institute in January put out a report talking about children here with parents, at least one, or one parent who's an unauthorized immigrant. And there are all kinds of things that are very similar across the board. Uh, right now, they identified over 5 million children in the U.S. who whose parents are unauthorized immigrants, one or both of them are. And ironically, 79% of
1: them are U.S. citizens. Okay. Which to so, me is just crazy. So the children are U.S. citizens, but they become vulnerable because one or, or both parents is not.
2: Correct. And, and it and what it does is it impacts how they that interact. Uh, while there are 5 million in the U.S., uh, and I'm searching through numbers here, United States, let's say just California, let's bring it home, right? Because that's where we're, we're coming from. 1.481 million kids in California alone are children of unauthorized men, uh, immigrants. And to get a feeling for that, of all immigrants in California, that's 33% of them. 33% of the 4.4 million that are out there that are children of immigrants. And from overall, where all the kids in the California period, that's 17% of the population. That means, you know, one out of every 10, two out of every 10 kids we're running across are in these situations where, uh, frankly, the, the the risk factors are still there. They don't have, they have lower preschool enrollment, lower education enrollment. They have linguistic isolation. Uh, poverty, 75% of them are on the meal plans at their school because their parents can't afford to feed them breakfast, lunch or lunch, and sometimes even dinner. Uh, and again, because of those limiting factors and you know all combined, what ends up happening is they have it it's that much harder for them to break out of that socioeconomic strata that they're in that level, and again makes them ripe for exploitation because they want to get out, but they don't have the tools, the education, the experience, the connections to be able to get out safely and without being exploited along the way
1: and is would it be correct to Um, to understand that some of the poverty may be because their parents are actually in some kind of labor trafficking situation or at least um, wage exploitation?
2: I would say that would be 100% accurate, that they're are a lot of kids and whose families and parents, you know, if they're lucky enough to be with their parents, some parents get separated and are off on their own, but, but the wages they're making aren't good enough. They're, they're at least getting their wages garnished if not taken from them. Um, if, they're, if they're allowed to have the children there uh, or allowed to have the children with them, then they are you know, perhaps even working, the children even working themselves to try to offset some of the debt or to try to help the family make more money just to put food on the table. Not not even thinking about education and and all the other things that go with being a kid and growing up here in the
1: United States. The the idea of kids being responsible for helping put food on the table reminds me of when I was the task force administrator and was doing some research in a very poor area of Orange County. Um, I interviewed a school psychologist at the high school and she explained to me that pimps took advantage of young girls who lived in that area and told them, I understand that your family needs help, and I can give you a hundred dollars a week to help put food on the table, and and you only have to air quotes work on the weekends and they they coerced and manipulated these young women into the Latino brothels. And if the offer of the, the reward of being able to feed your brothers and sisters wasn't working, then they used the, the immigration status to threaten, to coerce this teenager with, if you don't work for us, then we will call and um, the authorities will come and take your uncle, come and take your mother, come and take your father.
2: And that's huge because almost, you know, when you're talking about labor trafficking or any kind of foreign national trafficking, uh, one of the first things that's done, even even with domestic trafficking, is any kind of possessions or documents are almost immediately taken for, quote unquote, safekeeping. As part of the leverage that the traffickers are holding over people that they're exploiting and commercially taking advantage of, and it, you know, you're telling those stories, and it, it reminds me of we had, you know, back in the days when I was working in, in, the, in the police department, we would have kids, we would call them like weekend runaways, where they would disappear after school on Friday, and no one heard from them until Monday, and the only time we'd ever get calls on those after a certain point would be if they if they actually didn't come home on Monday and the mom or the dad would call and say, hey, they're gone. Um, they always leave on the weekends. We never know where they're at, but they always come home during the week, and so now we're worried. And so it's almost, there's a kind of like a quiet compliance, especially if they're bringing home any kind of money at all um, to, you know, for kind of basic recognition that the family needs some kind of support. If that's how they have to do it, everyone kind of t- try to turn a blind eye to what's going on.
1: So when I think about how huge this is, and just here in California, 1.48 million children, and the 1.4 billion people in the developing world with poverty, I have to go back and look at the hope that I see in the sustainable development goals that were adopted by the United Nations. And how do we begin to apply those goals to this issue of reducing risk for kids,
2: correct. And 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 I don't want to. You know, it's important to realize we do have lots of programs to help children. You know the, the the feeding the children at the schools, for instance. Um, you know, pre-enrollment at you know or enrollment in preschool and areas like that. There are lots of agencies that are are put, pouring money into these institutions and into these programs, so children have more of a chance for it. The the challenge is really getting that message out to these parents because there's, they are worried about being deported and separated from their family. And even though their child is a United States citizen, there are states right now that, um, and I'm thinking of a couple that have come up with some really uh, interesting, almost Machiavellian laws, and I understand why they're doing it to some degree, but um, that, like, for instance, in one state, that even though the child was born as a U.S. citizen, they're not they're not giving them the documentation or the paperwork to to verify their it's they're US citizens, even though they were born in the United States. And that type of, you know, government recalcitrance, if you will, or uh, refusal to follow the the federal law, while I, I'm sure in the end it gets amended in the short term, it just becomes even more problematic for documentation purposes and for access to those government, state and local resources that are available for the for the kids.
1: So when um when I look at some of the risk factors that perpetuate this, uh, you mentioned uh, education access. Can you speak to that?
2: Sure. Well. We, we talk a little bit about preschool, I, I, and there are studies out that say that the earlier you start with preschool, or the earlier you start with school, and period, then the more chance you have for socialization, for language skill development, and also, you know, basically enculturation, understanding how our world works, mm-hmm. and, and how, you know, how the roles different people play in, and and having better access to understanding how things. Uh, how people interact acceptably in our society and you know 48 percent of these kids aren't enrolled in preschool at all versus you know 20 percent of american kids or even less um their linguistic isolation is a problem and in fairness over time they pick up the language but during their first few years those are critical years for learning and if they're not getting the message across because they don't speak the right language that that doesn't help anyone and again um 43 percent of those kids are having issues versus 24 percent with with legal immigrant parents and six percent just us citizens and finally when you're looking at poverty i really think that's you know that's critical i mean if you're to, if you were to focus on one issue and that's also you know from the united nations and they've done great improvements they, they started these goals i think back in 1990 or 2000 and so they're they're going to 2030 with the, you know these sustainable goals um but poverty is really it the fact that these kids don't have the families don't have money, which puts them in a situation where they're trying to get money any way they can. And because of that unauthorized immigrant status, that also contributes to them uh, having to potentially contribute themselves and feel responsible for helping the family survive as a unit. Uh, That poverty issue is, is critical for them to circumnavigate, whether it's through programs and school lunches and things like that. Or whether it's through increased opportunities for the unauthorized parents, unauthorized immigrant parents, excuse me, to um,
1: hold jobs and have some kind of status here in the U.S. So, this is the Global Center for Women and Justice Ending Human Trafficking podcast. So, I just have to ask, what is the role of just being female in increasing vulnerability?
2: Well, I. I <laughs> That's like the biggest cultural, you know, question of the day, right? Because we do have so many societies and cultures that don't value women as highly as they do men to begin with and feel, you know, there, there are still places, you know, in the world where women are considered a commodity that they're, you know, they're good for a bride price. and That's about it. Um, and it's horribly unfortunate. So I would say that especially when it comes to sex trafficking and there, there seems to be no want of, uh, people that have perverted desires and are looking to get any kind of access to women or girls uh, through any kind of power relationship or or by exploiting them through sexual activities or even through caste or through their culture or through their society and how it's based. So I would say that a woman's risk would be greater, uh, especially when it comes to the sex trafficking issues and the idea that they they are an object and not a unique individual human being themselves.
1: It's very significant to me to look at the the role of quality education and um, equality for women and girls in relationship to risk of, of so many things beyond even human trafficking, but any kind of exploitation, violence against women. And when we're trying to develop a strategy to end human trafficking, our goal is to stop it happening, not just um, rescue people after they've been victimized. And as, as leaders in a much more mature movement now, more and more people are de- trying to develop strategic plans that will eliminate risk. And so community development strategies right here, um, community development Strategies in the country of origin where migration patterns might have contributed to this? Can we make it safer and healthier and more social socioeconomically um, strong where that little girl is, provide education for her? Those kinds of development goals are going to be the sustaining um, strategy in the next big movement
2: to end human trafficking. Well, I agree. I, I believe wholeheartedly that because we've been in this movement for a while, and you know, and child exploitation happened long before we identified human trafficking as one way for it to to occur. And we've had this discussion numerous times in you know different venues. But you know, our my feeling is you know where, where demand comes in, and really you have to reframe who people are and, and what what you can expect from them. I think it. You're looking at a cultural re- reworking. You're looking at the way media represents people, whether it's magazines, you know, TV, movies. Um, those are all things, all in all areas, that have to contribute to a more uh, resonant, positive image for w- women, girls, and boys, and, and kids, and men too. As far as what are acceptable roles to play. I mean, I still, in my work in anti-trafficking. Whether you know here in D.C. or out in California or wherever I go, I still see a predominant number of women participating and not that many men, and I'm always frustrated by that because it's it's a it's a mutual it's an adult issue it's it's a, it's a human issue, and I I don't understand why there's such a bifurcation of gender as part of this. I mean I do and I just don't I don't accept it because I would think as we grow up and mature in this issue, um, that would in hopefully decrease the a disparity between genders that are represented and becoming role models for the kids in the next generation, so they understand um, that you can be you know for victim rights, you can be uh, you can go out there and do enforcement whether you're male or female it has nothing to do with it. It has to be like a a global citizen to take care of each other and make sure that everyone has the opportunities that they can get and take advantage yeah. of without taking advantage of other people.
1: I love that. I want to be a global citizen, and we take care of each other. That really sums up the sustainable development goals. I want um, the daughters of my my friends and colleagues in Romania, in Iraq, in Argentina to have the same opportunities that my daughters have. Um, we're, we're winding up here. Derek, do you have one 60-second um closing statement for us. Well, wow. um,
2: <laughs> I would just say that you know I appreciated you actually asking the question to begin with because you know I I've I have I have begun to think thought, think recently about you know how does how does a pimp become a pimp and uh, we we worry about uh rehabilitation and survivorship for our victims and rightfully so. But also there's, there's a survivability and also a rehabilitation for the people who are taking advantage of others, and you know, they come out of you know deprived environments as well. But uh, but more like you than me, you went one step beyond looking at the children in these, especially for national homes or you know unauthorized immigrant homes, uh, and seeing how they're impacted both on the global and local level. And I agree. I mean, I, I really think that if we're really going to approach the issue proactively then we're going to have to identify the people who are at risk before they even are at risk or they're in situations that put them at risk or developing at risk and to create programs that are collaborative across you know federal state local ngo you know uh, faith-based organizations and create programs that help identify these kids these, these boys and girls, and provide those resources and help them learn how to provide for themselves so that they don't pass on this potential risk uh, to their to their children, or to not only to themselves, obviously, but to their children, and also provide opportunities for their parents so they can help, so those parents can help provide and and not have more children that could potentially be at risk as well.
1: It is always great to have you on our show. And for those who missed Ensure Justice, we've recorded the conference and you'll be able to access that. Go to vanguard.edu forward slash GCWJ and you'll be able to look at resources, find our podcast. And if you have questions, email us at GCWJ at vanguard.edu.
0: And uh, Sandy, I'll echo that. Thank you so much to Derek for his leadership on this issue and for all of the perspective that he's brought to us and educating us. And I will second the recommendation to check us out online. And if you do have a comment or question for us, in addition that we weren't able to uh, tackle on today's show, you can also call us 714-966-6360. And you can also visit us online at vanguard.edu slash GCWJ. And if you haven't already, you'll find a place on the website there to subscribe to our mailing list and to receive updates on what Sandy's doing and what the Global Center for Women and Justice is doing. Thanks, Sandy. And thanks, Derek. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks, Dave.